0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode two of the Dylan Sawyer Show. Today, I have on a very special guest, good friend of mine, seven-figure Amazon seller, Corey Gannam. Corey, welcome.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. Looking forward to, to chatting with you today.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. So off the bat, I want you to tell me how you got started on Amazon. What's your story from the start?
1: Yeah, so my story, it sounds a lot like uh, a lot of people in the space, at least people that I know. So I started off, I found out about Amazon FBA when I was a senior in college. So I was studying abroad for like a three-week period towards the end of my senior year. I was sitting in my hotel room. I was actually in Vietnam at the time. And I stumbled upon a Reezy Resells video. So for those of you that have been around for a while, you probably know exactly who he is. He's an OG. He was a bookseller back in the day. And he was one of the first people to really put out a lot of content on Amazon, or sorry, on YouTube about selling on Amazon, at least with this specific model, right? Arbitrage, book selling, retail arbitrage, that type of thing. So stumbled upon a video of his where he is going into Marshalls and he's scanning different books, right? And he's finding which ones you can buy for 25 cents, 50 cents a dollar and turn around and flip on Amazon. And that whole concept to me at the time was completely foreign. I'd always been interested in flipping stuff, but I didn't know that like Amazon was a thing. I didn't know Amazon FBA was a thing. And really the whole world of e-commerce was pretty new to me. So I really devoured as much information as I could over the next four or five months leading up to college graduation. Once I graduated from college, I started pretty much the day after graduation, I started going to thrift stores in my town, pretty much copying Reezy's methods, buying used books for a couple of uh, quarters each, and then flipping them on Amazon. Eventually graduated into doing more online arbitrage uh, so buying from sites like Walmart, Target, uh, all the sites that most people start with when they do OA and flipping on Amazon that way. And then January of 2019, we transitioned fully to wholesale, which is our current business model, where same concept is arbitrage buying from retail stores, except in this case, we're buying either directly from the manufacturer or from an authorized distributor in bulk and then turning around and selling on Amazon. So that's kind of where we have been or that's kind of what we've been doing since January of 2019. We've definitely, you know, we've pivoted quite a bit. We've had people come and go. We've we've learned a lot in the process, but uh, as of today, 100% wholesale and have been full-time Amazon Wholesale since August of 2020, so just over three years now.
0: That's awesome. Talk me through the transition from OA to wholesale and how that worked.
1: Yeah, definitely. So starting off with OA, Uh, It was Well, first of all, OA is a really good way to learn how to sell on Amazon. It's a a fantastic way to learn the platform. You learn how to create shipments, you learn how to source, you learn how to read a keep a graph. I mean, all the critical skills that you need as you scale an Amazon business, you learn while doing OA. So as far as transitioning from OA to wholesale, I mean, I wish I could say that we had this thought out plan for, all right, this is exactly how we're going to transition. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. But realistically, how it worked is... At the end of 2018, you know, I was still 100% OA at this time. I was kind of for whatever reason burned out on Amazon. I wasn't really interested in pursuing it further. So I was actually ready to throw in the towel. I was actually just about to quit the business in total. Wow. Yeah, but I stumbled upon a video from Larry Labarsky. So he goes by Watch Me Amazon, and the video it just spoke to me for whatever reason, probably because of the way that he laid it out. It was very simple he pretty much just showed a Google Doc, right? Where he just broke down some simple numbers from the wholesale business model. And the numbers are something along the lines of, okay, you start off with $5,000 in capital, you deploy that 5,000 on profitable inventory. And then once you sell everything, you get your $5,000 back, plus you get a return of, let's say, you know, $900. Um, And then you deploy that 5,900 and then it comes back as say 7,200, right? And he basically just very clearly illustrated the snowball effect that, Amazon Wholesale can have. And for whatever reason, that just spoke to me, right? Like I said, I was ready to throw in the towel. I saw this as being a much more scalable model, one that just made more sense. And from there, we pretty much, I mean, I pretty much stopped selling OA at that point. So just pretty much resumed the business, started calling suppliers there within the next week or two and just uh, stuck to it, yeah, for the last six years or so. That's awesome. So you Or just, I guess, sorry, wholesale four and a half years, almost five.
0: So you jumped right into just calling up distributors and brands directly?
1: Yeah, so that's really our approach starting out was we went 100% brand direct. So, and partially because I just didn't know any better. I just, I saw, I'm like, okay, well I see people, they're cold calling these brands, they're emailing these brands, they're just trying to get in touch with these brands directly. So that's what I'm gonna do, right? So that's just how I started. I started by making a list of, I think every day I'd make a list of like 15 or 20, sometimes up to 25 new brands that I wanted to contact. And so I'd reach out to those, however many brands, 15, 20, 25. And then I'd always make a note to follow up with the ones that either I didn't get in touch with or that, you know, kind of told me to wait. So as that workload snowballs, you know, after you're reaching out to 20 new brands per day for two or three weeks and having to follow up with all the ones that you haven't quite gotten closure with yet. I mean, it gets to the point where you're contacting 50, 60, 70 plus people per day. And, you know, this was on top of my nine to five job at the time. Um, yes, but I mean, I'll be honest at my job, I wasn't really doing a whole lot, so (laughs) it was kind of easy. And this, this was my, this was my focus really for most of the day, but yeah, that's, that's how it looks in the beginning for, especially for most people. Did you try
0: out any other businesses before Amazon or was Amazon your first ever business?
1: Yeah. So I had been, I'd been involved in a, I mean, a bunch of different businesses up to that point. I've always kind of just been an entrepreneur my whole life. So I, let's see, my first I mean, I'm trying to think my first like legitimate business, you could call it that would be in ninth grade, I started converting, converting VHS tapes to DVDs for people. So you know how a lot of people have like their home movies, their home videos from when their kids were younger, they have them either on VHS tapes or on like eight millimeter camcorder tapes and bottom line. So my, my mom had a bunch of these, we found a converter and I converted hers for her. And then one day I think like a family friend asked if we could do theirs and I was like, oh, this could be a business. So I, my mom let me send like a, a mass email to like everybody in her contacts. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I as in ninth grade, just telling people, hey, I'm Corey. I'm I'm Carrie's son. I'm converting these tapes to DVDs. If anybody's interested, I think I charge like ten dollars a tape. And I was like, yeah, you know, you can contact me here. And I got a bunch of customers that way. And it actually ended up doing that. For, I just stopped doing it like a year and a half ago. But wow. it's. Yeah, but and I never marketed it. It was 100% word of mouth, very like 98% net margin business, like very high margin. Um, just a super interesting business that I mean, anybody, especially like a high school kid, that they can make a lot of money on the side doing that. And then I had other things too. Like I, every summer during college, I did uh, pressure washing. So I'd go door to door and <clears throat> basically ask people, Hey, you know, you're, Your driveway looks like it looks like right now. And then I'd have, you know, like a picture with me of this is somebody else's driveway that looked exactly like yours. And you could kind of show them the before and after. So it was very obvious what a pressure wash driveway looked like compared to a non-pressure wash driveway. And then just trying to sell them on those services, right? And so go door to door, line people up, knock out all the work in a day or two, and then just repeat the process usually every summer. And that was um, like, I mean, technically manual labor, but very high dollar per hour, Uh, business as well so yeah always been into kind of that type of stuff
0: that's awesome I have a few buddies now who do the pressure washing thing they do really well off that
1: yeah it's I mean it's a really good that's another really good just like starter business too if I could go back I'd probably I probably would have started with window washing only because um, takes a little less time I mean really you could have a business that does both but I knew another guy that did the same thing we were doing he was going door-to-door but instead of selling pressure washing he was selling window washing Mm -hmm. And he made a lot more money in a lot less time than we did. So if I, I think if I would have stuck with it, that's probably what I would have pivoted to. But yeah, really good business. And I mean, when you go door to door like that, especially in the summer in North Carolina, I mean, a lot of the sales that I made were people that felt sorry for me because I was like, I'd knocked on their door and they'd open the door and I'm literally pouring sweat, like <laughs> literally like dripping sweat because it's 100 degrees in the middle of the summer and they just would feel bad. But really, that's how you get good at, sale- at selling is going door to door like that.
0: That's awesome. So back to Amazon, what percentage of your business now is through brands directly versus distributors?
1: So as of today, so it's October 2023, I'd say probably 85% of our business is buying through distributors and about 10 to 15% is brand direct. We are looking to shift that percentage. So I've made it pretty clear that I'm trying to work with a lot more brands directly. And not that working through distributors is bad. Obviously, it's 85% of our business, but I just think there's more security and more long-term potential working directly with brands.
0: 100%. So when, was, when did you get your first brand direct account? Was that back in 2019?
1: Yeah. So that would have been <clears throat> back in 2019. Um, as far as like getting our first account, I mean, it, that happened within the first couple of days only because of the sheer volume that I was doing. So... Mm-hmm. You know, if I talked to 60, 80 brands in the first week, let's say, I mean, we definitely got a couple of accounts open that way. But as far as the first one that we actually purchased from that was actually profitable, uh, that also happened in 2019. But that was probably more like, you know, one to 200 brands in as far as like ones that I reached out to. Uh, and the f- I don't think it was the first one that we ended up purchasing from. But the first one that we ended up working with for an extended period of time came from those early out there that early outreach. And so I was living in Chicago at the time. And this brand happened to also be located in Chicago. And uh, I ended up being able to go in there, meet with them in person like the next day. And keep in mind, I was pretty much brand new to wholesale at the time. I had no idea what I was talking about. Just try to educate them on the little that I did know at the time, uh, which was more than they knew, right? So it did position me as an expert, even though I wasn't an expert. And we got that account. Um, we ended up working with them for close to three years, which, and we parlayed that into an exclusive on some of their better, better selling SKUs. And yeah, that ended up being a really good relationship for us for a while.
0: That's awesome.
1: So nowadays, uh, are you still doing
0: mostly cold calls or are you finding most of your distributors from like trade shows or just meeting them in person?
1: Yeah. So most of our, like if we, if we're looking to form a new relationship whether it's directly with a brand or whether it is with a distributor so we are definitely still doing some cold outreach so we will still just reach out to brands uh we're, we're kind of past the point like we're not just going to send an email to a generic like info at website.com right or sales at website.com yeah. if we're looking to establish a relationship i'm going to try to go directly to a decision maker so either reaching out to them on linkedin or we use a data tool called seamless.ai that has a lot of email address, uh, contact information for people at different companies. So we'll try to go directly to the source that way. And then uh, same thing with distributors. So if we're gonna, we're not just like kind of reaching out to random distributors to work with. It's gonna be, if we're reaching out to a new distributor, it's gonna be targeted. Either we tried to work with the brand and the brand said, hey, go through this distributor instead. Then we'll kind of leverage that warm intro to get in the door with the distributor. That works really well. Or the only other scenario where we'd be looking to work with a new distributor is if we're working with, like, let's say, our top distributors right now. Let's say we're looking to work with one of their competitors just to kind of keep them honest and make sure we're getting the best pricing. Then we'll, we'll make a short list of like two to three super targeted distributors that we know are very similar to the ones that we're currently working with. And we'll call them up and we'll say, hey, we're currently spending X per year with this distributor, right? Who they're immediately going to know because it's their competitor. We're looking to buy these specific brands because that's, curr- that's what we're currently buying through these guys. Wanted to reach out about possibly working with you guys too. And I mean, they like when you mention the fact that you're currently spending a lot of money with their competitor, I mean, that, you're going to get that account like 100% of the time. Yeah. Like, you really have to mess that up to not, to not get in the door there.
0: For sure. What are some of the big challenges you face when opening up new accounts?
1: So, I mean, we get the same rejections just like everybody else, right? I mean, just this week, we got multiple rejections from brands saying, oh, sorry, we don't sell to Amazon sellers. And so, okay, that's that's fine. But, you know, why? Why do you mind me asking why that is? And so that's what I always... I never want to take a no at face value. I always want to at least get their reasoning for that. And a a strategy that's worked for us in the past... Now, not to say that this works with a high degree, like at a high percentage, but it's going to work a lot better than if you hadn't done it at all. So for example, one brand owner this week, he said, hey, uh, you know, thanks for reaching out. Sorry, we have uh, an exclusive Amazon seller that we work with right now, so we're not looking to work with anymore. I took a look at their listings and they've got like literally 20 to 25 sellers on all of their listings. So either this guy is just completely, you know, just trying to blow me off and hoping that I didn't notice that, or he thinks that they're working with an exclusive seller when in reality, their Amazon like sales channel is just a nightmare and they, they don't know how to rein it in. So what I did is I said, hey, completely understand. I made this very quick video for you. It'll take you less than three minutes to watch and it's not a sales pitch. If I was somebody in your position, this is information that I would wanna know. Take it and give it to your exclusive Amazon seller and have them implement it, right? That's literally what I said word word for word. And it was a three and a half minute Loom video where I broke down their best selling listing. And I was, you know, I'm very respectful. I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm not trying to bash their brand. Like I said, in the message, I'm trying to give them information that if I was this person, he was the president of the company, this is information I would want to know. And in the video, all I said was, hey, Tom, I understand you guys have an exclusive seller. Just letting you know, I'm sure you're aware, but on this particular listing for your best selling product, you've got 25 different sellers right now. Okay. It sounds like that's not the intention. So it sounds like it might be a distribution issue. Second thing I noticed is that I'm looking at the Keeper graph here and I always show them the Keeper graph and it can be overwhelming. So I try to say like, hey... Don't don't read too much into it. I'm just trying to prove a point. Don't pay too much attention to the graph, but it looks like you guys have a MAP price at 21.99 and according to this graph which charts the historical pricing of this product on Amazon, this listing has not been MAP compliant since October of last year, right? It's not even close. Yeah. And then you can I can show them I'm like this thing has gotten as low as $13.26 2 weeks ago and it's gotten as high as $37, right? So customers are not getting a consistent buying experience basically and and i showed him a couple more examples like you know you guys aren't brand registered you don't have a plus content you don't have a brand storefront so if somebody clicks on the brand name on your listing it just goes to a search results page which competitors can encroach on by advertising on your branded keywords which is exactly what they're doing right so when customers are searching for your brand name the first four results they're seeing are ads and all four of those ads are from your competitors right if i'm the president of the company that would that should piss me off yeah. if I'm doing my job correctly. And I literally told him, I sent him the video and I said, here's the video, here's this information, tell your current seller to implement this, right? Just tell him to do it. In the hopes that, and again, this doesn't usually happen, but sometimes they'll, they'll think to themselves, oh, well, this random guy that I've never met, that I have no relationship with is giving me all this information about my brand on Amazon. Why is my existing seller not doing this right why is the person that I'm supposed to be exclusive with why am I having to hear this from some random guy on LinkedIn so that's my hope there that he would then say, okay well hey let's let's talk further in this case he didn't and they usually don't but you know five percent of the time, maybe ten percent of the time you can at least get a response that'll further the, that'll kind of keep your foot in the door
0: yeah and that's really important with exclusives as well, because that's what you want to be. You want to be an exclusive seller for those high-end brands. We talked to Mm -hmm. a lot of distributors and brands at uh, Expo East, where they said that, oh, we have two authorized sellers, and there'd be 25, 30 sellers on every listing. They have no idea what to do and how to fix that. And we're like, Mm -hmm. well, you can do brand registry, you can use transparency codes, and it just goes over their head a lot of the time. So... I'm sure breaking it down like in a video format like that definitely provides them a lot of value and keeps your name in their mind.
1: Totally, and what you could have done at Expo East, because I mean, it's and I know, like you said, there's a lot of brands at Expo East that have that exact issue. They say, oh, we've got uh, exclusive seller, two exclusive sellers, you look at their listings and they've got 20 people. Well, then you try to have that conversation with them there on the show floor, so at least they meet you face to face and they know they, they can put a name to the face. And then you say, all right, listen, when I get home, I'm going to shoot a quick video. I'm going to break this all down for you. If what I'm saying to you makes sense, then let's set up a call to discuss further. No obligation. I'm just trying to inform you in my perspective from the seller side. Take the information and do whatever you want with it, right? Yeah. But by getting in front of them first at the trade show like you did, then the chances of them replying to that, that video that you're going to send them, it goes from that 5 to 10% that I mentioned when it's like a cold interaction to probably 40 50% if not higher. So that's, that's a really good you know opportunity there.
0: That's definitely true. Expo East is a very different show than like ASD or any of these distributor focus shows. And that's one thing I learned a lot about is that you can't just go there and say like, oh, I want this product at this price, a thousand units. Like you can at ASD where deals are made quickly on the spot. It's a mm-hmm. lot of relationship building, providing value, helping them with their listings and just showing them how you can improve their business and get rid of any pain points that they have compared to where ASD, where it's just quick buying, it's free all for shit. all. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so Expo East is more brand focused. You're saying?
0: Yes. Like it was almost a hundred percent brands. There was only a couple distributors there.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So something like a, a good approach that you could have taken. So I saw Jonah do this at ASD back in March. He, I think his partner and him, they're walking around with an iPad and they had smart scout pulled up on their iPad. And they had done some legwork beforehand, going into the show to know what brands were gonna be there and which brands basically needed help on Amazon, right? So he could walk right up to the booth and say, hey, I've got data right here. It's not my data, it's from a third party, right? This is, this is just facts showing that, you know, you can spend the data however you want. If they have an issue with too many resellers, you can say, hey, you've got 25 resellers on average. If this particular brand, let's just say they've got a huge retail presence and they're maybe a national brand, but their Amazon presence is weak, Smart Scout has a market, uh, a market share function, right? So you can show them, hey, you guys are in 300 retail stores, but in your subcategory on Amazon, you've got 2% of the market share, right? I know for, and I think you guys could agree you could do a lot better than that. So there's a lot of ways that you can frame, basically there's a lot of ways you can position yourself. It ju- it's just all, you position yourself around their pain points and then you paint yourself as a person to help them fix it
0: yeah one thing i learned <clears throat> is having an ipad to show them the data is like an essential so the first oh, day yeah. i was there i was by myself and then another seller came the next day this guy named nick uh you've probably seen him on yeah Google i know nick store. yeah and he came with an ipad he had smart scout and seller amp pulled up and he genius would just go and show them like oh here's the 20 sellers who are on your listing like are any of these people authorized and he could show them like how much monthly revenue they're doing all the Mm -hmm. information that you need to start a really good conversation. And that helped us get into very long talks with what problems they're facing, like how many exclusive sellers they have and what kind of went wrong for them to not be following that exclusive seller list and MAP pricing. And it's a really great foot in the door. So next trade show, I'm definitely going to be bringing an iPad.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you know, great investment, right? iPad costs, what, four or 500 bucks? You land one account, it pays for itself in one day. Like it's, it's the ROI is crazy. But yeah, so like you said, being able to show them that data, being able to get face to face. And I mean, I just like to ask them questions, right? I don't like to ever make accusatory statements or anything like that. Instead of saying, hey, you have 25, did you know that you have 25 sellers on your listing? Instead, ask them, hey, you know how many sellers you have on your listing right now? and that will open up a whole can of worms just that one question. They might say, "Oh god, yeah, you know, it's a free for all on there. We we don't even look at it. We don't even try to mess with it." And you could say, "Well, why is that? It's it could be a really big channel for you guys. Is there any reason you're not prioritizing it?" And then again, just let them talk and if you just shut up and kind of let them complain, which a lot of brand owners love to do, especially oh, yeah. when it comes to Amazon, you don't have to, you can say 10 words and you could basically get on, you know, have calls set up where you have an exclusive on the table in those situations.
0: Yeah, 100%. Uh, what, what trade shows do you have coming up that you're going to be headed to?
1: So I don't have any that are like, I guess I don't have any that are booked right now. I mean, I'll always go to ASD every year, both times, just primarily for the the networking with other sellers. I mean, the yeah. events that happen there, is, they're a lot of fun getting face to face with a lot of people you see on social media. Also, obviously, for buying opportunities from suppliers. I know that there's there's two tool trade shows coming up. One is I think NECA, NECCA, and then there's another one taking place I think same week in a in a different convention center also in Las Vegas, both of them in Las Vegas. So I'm considering going to those but I don't have them booked yet. Um, and then aside from those two, again, not on the schedule, but I'm more so interested in looking at maybe like smaller local kind of niche trade shows and looking for some brands that may be, may be more up and coming. So maybe they, again, have a good retail presence and they're just not quite getting it done on Amazon, or they have a retail presence, they're trying to get on Amazon and they just kind of need that person that can help take them to the next level. And they've got the retail sales to prove they can get there, they just need someone to handle the Amazon side. So I think that's, if, when it comes to trade shows, that's probably the type of shows we're gonna target Or ones that have uh, maybe more brands like that as opposed to these like mega brands.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a good approach because one thing I learned at Expo East is a lot of these brands that are doing like 100, 200, 300K a month in revenue, they already have all of their bases covered with exclusive Mm -hmm. sellers and they already know what they're doing, but it's a lot more opportunity and easier to secure exclusive accounts with the smaller brands doing like 30, 40, 50,000 a month compared to the bigger numbers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a really good sweet spot. And again, it depends on your experience level and like how much capital you have. But if you could target brands in like the 50 to 80K per month in revenue stage, I mean, those are brands that if they're if they're in that stage, like they've got something figured out on Amazon and that that something could just be the fact that their products are listed on Amazon, right? Like yeah. the fact that their listings exist can get some brands to 50 to 80K. But to get them to that hundred, two hundred, three hundred k a month mark, like you said, that that's going to take some planning. That usually takes a person dedicated to that effort at the company. And most brands of that size don't have a person dedicated to it. Usually, it's the head of marketing or the VP of sales, where their like part time job is also dealing with Amazon, and they don't want to deal with it, so they don't they don't deal with it, right? Yeah. So I think I think that sweet spot of brands between fifty and eighty k a month in revenue really regardless of category is a, is a really good sweet spot for people to get their foot in the door before the brands get pretty big.
0: hundred percent. So what does your business look like now in 2023? So how many uh, employees do you have? Do you have a warehouse? Walk me through that.
1: Yeah. So no warehouse. So we've been dealing exclusively with 3PLs since for about two and a half years now. So I want to say middle of 21, I want to say is when we got rid of our warehouse. So we had a 2,000-square-foot space uh, over at Wake Forest, North Carolina, that we had purchased, and then we sold it and outsourced to A3PL. Uh, As far as our team is concerned, so right now, it's just myself. And then we've got three virtual employees. Two of them are in the Philippines, and the two in the Philippines, one of them is full-time, one of them is part-time. And then I've got uh, just more of a personal assistant. She's in Nigeria. She doesn't really handle anything to do with the business, more so just my personal um, affairs and she's about two hours a day. So even, you know, part, part time.
0: Wow. So how many hours a day are you working on your Amazon business now?
1: So recently more than usual, I'd say probably three to four hours recently, only because we are trying to ramp up our brand direct outreach. We're going into Q4. We want to make sure that we're stocking up on really good inventory that we can sell a lot of during this quarter. Um, but I mean, I'd say like on a standard, week or standard day outside of Q4, anywhere from one to two hours. And I mean, the reason for that is because my head, <clears throat> my head of operations, my the virtual employee, the, the full-time one in the Philippines. So she's been with me for uh, next month will actually be four years that she's been working with us. Wow. Yeah, and she's really good. I mean, she knows the business inside and out. And at this point too, I mean, obviously I have a close relationship with a lot of our suppliers, but I mean, she's been the main one kind of contacting them putting orders in with the, So like she's closer with some of our suppliers than I am, at least as far as the sales reps are concerned. So, I mean, she's able to kind of be my liaison when it comes to purchasing, which as you know, is the the most important part of the business, the most time intensive part of the business. Yep. So we've got a pretty good system in place now where if even if it's a new product that we've never carried before, or if it's a product that we're replenishing, she's able to pretty accurately, I'd say with like 90% accuracy at this point, put together a purchase order and she'll, she'll run it by me first. So every day we'll sit down and look at like, okay, I think yes, 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 no, change the quantity here. Yes. Right. And so that might be like, it might take five minutes for me to kind of give her the thumbs up and the thumbs down on that PO. And then she'll go in and place it. She'll make sure it gets to the prep center. Or if that order is going straight to Amazon, she'll get them the labels. She'll get them the SKU. She'll get them everything they need to fulfill that order and it's just creating that leverage right that's taken about four years to build with her is what's allowed me to you know we can place we placed six figure pos with less than 15 minutes of my involvement my involvement only being you know literally going in to verify that the quantities are are what we want to buy
0: that's pretty wild there's not many people i know that have uh, virtual employees that can make purchasing decisions and really handle most of the business so i find that really really impressive
1: Yeah. I mean, she's, I really credit goes to her. She's really, really good. She's very dedicated, very organized. And, but part of that is, I mean, I pay her really well. She gets bonuses. I've loaned her money. I bought her a new laptop. Uh, you know, whenever she needs time off, she can take it. Like she's treated very well. And she pays that back with fierce loyalty. And really she treats the business like her own. So, you know, she'll negotiate for a better deal if she thinks she can get a better deal, even though that's it's not putting money in her pocket directly, right? Yeah. So she, she takes ownership and that's, yeah, big, big props to her for that. And another thing too, is the fact that we only really work with three to six main suppliers for the most part. So it's not like she's having to herd cats dealing with, you know, 15, 20 different suppliers, 15, 20 different orders. We're typically just buying the same stuff and similar quantities. And now we're always adding new SKUs. Mm-hmm. But it's not like we're adding 15, 20 new SKUs at a time. We might be testing, you know, two to five a week. And of yeah. those two to five, we end up replenishing two or three. And so the, it doesn't; it's not super unmanageable for a team of really three people.
0: Where did you hire your virtual employees from?
1: So the, <clears throat> the two I have working in the business from onlinejobs.ph. So that's always my go-to. I just really like working with people in the Philippines. I think that they're fantastic people. Um, and again, my, my personal assistant, she's from Nigeria, she's really good as well. She actually, I found her through Twitter. So she DM me on Twitter. That's how I found her. But as far as people in the business, uh, really, I look to the Philippines and onlinejobs.ph is, is the best place in my experience to find them.
0: What are some ways that you can filter down your criteria on who to hire on online jobs?
1: Cause I know there's so many people
0: who apply when you say like need help with an Amazon FBA business, you're going to get two, 300 applicants.
1: Yeah. I mean, you put the word Amazon in your job posting and you're yeah. going to get at least 200 applicants. Yeah. <clears throat> so I've got a couple, uh, I guess, like tactics that I use to disqualify early, which is something that I really try to do because it sounds bad, but at the end of the day, uh, virtual employees from the Philippines are a dime a dozen. There are so many of them and so many of them are hungry for work that finding the actual the really good ones because I mean, the, the best ones are currently employed, right? The best ones aren't going to be looking for jobs. So to really find the ones that you know they might have just gotten out of a job or they just ha- they're a really good fit for your business, but you got to kind of dig in and find them. One of the ways to do that is, so when we post a job posting, usually it's a few paragraphs long. And we'll bury a sentence somewhere midway through like the second or third paragraph or just random sentence. And it says, if you've read this far in the job posting, please include the word banana in the subject line of your reply. So you get a lot of people that are just applying to hundreds of jobs per day. I mean, if you put that sentence in the middle of your posting, you'll get about that. That right there will eliminate 25, sorry, 75 to 80 percent of applicants immediately. Because my thing is, is if somebody's not going to take the time to read my job posting for a job that is detail oriented, that requires extreme attention to detail, then they're not going to be detail oriented with my business. So that eliminates about 80 percent of people right there. The next thing that we do at the bottom of every job posting is we say the next like these two things must be met for us to consider your application, Uh, like no exceptions. And so first thing is we we need a speed test of your Internet. uh, Sorry, a screenshot of your Internet speed. Which, I mean, everybody knows to go to speedtest.net to get that. If they can't figure that out, then they're not a good fit. The second thing is we need a voice sample from you, no more than 30 seconds, explaining why you're the best fit for the job. So that does two things. If it's 31 seconds, you're disqualified, right? It's got like, you ne- I need to know you can follow instructions. Second thing is when we get a voice sample in 30 seconds, that can tell me all right, is this person, are they concise? Are they well-spoken enough to convey to me why they should be a member of the team? Now, it's not a deal breaker if they're not very well-spoken because sometimes they're not going to be, but it gives you a pretty good feel for how that person is. And then the third thing is that the voice sample just shows you how good their English is, right? So um, again, for our business, they don't need to have perfect English. They don't need to sound like somebody I'd meet on the street, but a lot of times they're going to be uh, at least talking with people briefly, whether to pay invoices, follow up on orders. Like I need them to be competent in having a, an English conversation. So those two further disqualifiers, the speed test and the uh, the voice sample will further eliminate probably another 10% of people. So right there with those two disqualifiers, you've eliminated 90% of the applicant pool. So you're going to be left with probably 20 to 30 applications that are decent From those 20 to 30 we'll usually spot check the resumes if they've been hopping around to a bunch of jobs like if they can't hold a job for more than a couple of months they're usually just disqualified which again will knock down another probably five to eight so when it comes to actually schedule interviews you're you're going to be left with about 10 to 15 qualified people out of the hundreds that apply and what i like to do there is just send them a calendly link where they can choose they can book a time to meet with me for you know 15 minutes is really all it takes And I like to batch all those interviews until let's say a three hour window on a Friday afternoon. And now people don't agree with this, but I I think that this is a smart thing to do. I like to batch the interviews around like two to 3 p.m. on a Friday, which is two to 3 a.m. their time on a Saturday. Very inconvenient for them. They're not gonna wanna show up, but I wanna see who wants it, right? Again, with the with the supply being so much larger than the demand in terms of the amount of people over there that wanna work, I only wanna work with people that really want it. I'm going to be on time for the interview i'm going to respect their time so i'm going to see who shows up and then from there it's just you know if 10 people if you send 10 interview requests six or seven will show up of those six to seven you've you've pretty much put them through like three to four layers of disqualification so in my experience one of those six to seven always ends up being a fit for what we're looking for
0: yeah, I've definitely noticed the same thing. So I've had a good amount of virtual assistants in the past. And until I did all of those steps with the subject line and doing all of that, that really changed the game for me. That got me the best virtual assistant I've ever had in my life. And someone who I can know is going to be on the team for years and years to come. Um, yep. One thing I wanted to ask you is, do you have your virtual assistants working on your hours, like nine to five in the U.S., or are they working in Philippines time?
1: so that's a good question so it's pretty it's like it's a common request to ask them to work eastern time or to work you know any sort of us based time yeah but uh so my admin who's the part-time one in the business he works 7 a.m to 11 a.m eastern and then uh, my head of operation she works 2 a.m to 2 p.m eastern typically okay so she's yeah and that's i told her i'd prefer her work nine to five eastern but she's got a young son. Basically, to accommodate her schedule, that's kind of how we worked it out. It works fine because usually, if there's you know, if craziness is going to happen during the day, it's going to usually be in the beginning of the day as opposed to the end. So we haven't had too many issues where her not being there past two has, has been an issue.
0: What uh, salary do you start your virtual assistants at?
1: So I I start them. I like to, and I tell people like really these days you can't find anyone decent for less than five dollars an hour. <clears throat> At least in the Philippines, um, you know, five to eight to ten years ago, that could be as low as three dollars an hour, sometimes even lower. But these days, you're just not going to find somebody that is qualified, that's dedicated for less than that price. And really, I mean, six to eight per hour is probably where I would look to start. Again, and if you're gonna, if you're looking for like a really high quality person, I mean, there are some people out there that they're ex Deloitte, they're ex Accenture, like you know, people that they they're filipinos They live in the philippines they work in the philippines but they've been working for these huge us-based companies for a decade like they're professionals they know what they're doing and so people like that you're gonna have to pay up for you know seven eight nine an hour to start um my admin i think he's at six an hour right now and then my head of operations is at i want to say 10 an hour And, and but so basically she which is kind of is low for the value that she's bringing but she wants more hours so i basically was like all right you can do you know you can do 10 an hour and work uh 60 hours a week was kind of our agreement so that basically helped she wanted to make 600 dollars a week is kind of the net of it and so that's uh that's kind of the agreement that we came up with to get her there how do you structure your bonuses so we tie them to kpi performance So, usually at the beginning of every quarter, we'll sit down and set goals for the company. And we tie them to, like, we tie those goals to the bonuses. So we just say, all right, guys, this quarter, these are the goals. If we hit them, everybody gets a bonus. If we don't, we don't. Simple as that. And then, if it, depending on the type of goal, I like to keep it uncapped. So I like to use the example of um, a couple quarters ago, we did, we had a goal where it's like, all right, we want to, we want to open and purchase from five new brands directly in the tool and automotive category. And so if we, if we end up buying from five new brands, everybody gets their bonus. But if we buy from six new brands, then you get your bonus plus 5%, let's say seven new brands, 10%, eight new brands, 15%, right? So that way it can scale up because if we ended up undershooting our target and let's say we, we opened up five new account or we bought from five new brands, you know, 60 days into the month, well, I don't want them laying, leaving their foot off the gas the last month of the, the quarter, right? I'd, yeah. I'd rather incentivize them to go a bit further and, and i found that's kind of what happens.
0: That's a great way to have them motivated at all times. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, and you can tie like, it like, really it just comes down to being creative with the goals that you set because you want it to be like, one, you want it to be realistic, obviously. You don't want it to be too easy, but you also want it to, you want the goal to be something that's going to move the needle, right? And also yeah. something that they can influence, So I made the mistake in the past of, let's just say, I don't remember the example exactly, but let's say I made it to where, all right, our goal this quarter is to do, uh, let's say, you know 400K per month in revenue on average. And then, which is a good goal, but it's kind of, it's a lag measure goal. Like it's not, you know, they can't, while they can take actions to influence that measure, they can't take actions to like directly influence revenue, if that makes sense. So what would have been a better goal is, Instead, hey, let's focus on test ordering 10 new products per month, right? That's a goal that they have direct influence over that is a lead measure that will lead to that lag measure of 400 k per month in revenue, you see? So I, I made that mistake of not setting goals that were tied to or, or that they could kind of have direct influence on. And that's a little demotivating for the team and not entirely fair.
0: Yeah. What are some other KPIs you have set in your business?
1: So we have a few of the... The main one being number of ASINs shipped to FBA per week. So like we have, a you know, a goal or not, not necessarily like a goal that we need to hit per week, but we just want to know like how many, how many units do we ship to FBA this week? Right. Because we know that that tip, like our revenue typically lags two to three weeks behind our biggest shipments. So if we had a big week, let's say we sent in 8,000 units to FBA this week, well, then we know two weeks from now, our sales are going to be a lot higher, right? So focusing on those lead measure goals, like unit shipped to FBA. FBA. Um, one of them is just weekly revenue, which is more of a lag measure. One of them is active FBA ASIN. So how many ASINs do we have? One of them is our gross margin. One of them is our total spend for the week. And then one of them is our invoice spend for the week. So total spend is any, basically any purchase orders that we submitted. Invoice spend is anything that we actually paid for because you know that we could, we could put in 100 KPO today, but if only 10K of it is available to ship this week, we only, we're only going to get invoiced for that 10K, and we're only going to be able to send that 10K to Amazon. And so that remaining 90K will be invoiced at a later date, so that therefore we won't be able to sell it till a later date. So the invoice spend KPI is a, typically a better indicator of like how much we actually spent in a week. Yeah, 100%. Uh, What
0: criteria do you look for when doing your buys? Like, what sales rank, what gross margin, minimum are you willing to take?
1: Yeah, so good question. I mean, we're just, we're really just looking for like a $400 gross profit per month. That's what I would say. So,
0: Same exact thing for me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, anything less, I mean, that's not to say, like, if you're a newer seller, you know, target $100 gross profit per month, $200, $250 but i just know for us our best products tend to gross us at least around at least on average $400 per month gross profit and we would like to be at a um you know let's call it a 16% gross margin on average but again it's all about the dollar profit so if, if a product looks like it's going to make us $400 per month in profit and but it's at let's say a 10% gross margin well then we better be making up for it in volume right yeah and if it if a product is You know, let's say a product is has a sales rank of 300K, so maybe we're only going to sell you know five to seven units per month. But maybe it's a really high-priced product where we make you know $100 profit per unit. If we sell six a month on average, that's $600 gross profit per unit on average or per month. Um, Then you know, as long as the margin is acceptable, then then that's a product that that we'll move forward with. Really, we don't. We just don't want our gross margin to be under 10% on anything. I mean for for us to take a gross and I know in the past I've said that you know we can go as low as like 7 or 8% as long as the volume's really there but when we sat down and and really broke down our catalog looked at our numbers looked at the cost of capital right when we borrow money to buy inventory if we're if we're if our net mar- sorry if our gross margin is under about 10% then we're not necessarily breaking even but Uh, That's kind of when we get into the danger zone, right? Based on all our operating expenses and cost of capital.
0: Final question for you. Walk me through a day in your life.
1: Yeah, so I haven't actually had anyone ask me this in a while. (laughs) So these days, my routine, at least during the week, is pretty much the same. So I wake up around 5, I go straight to the gym, I come up, or I guess go to the gym, go on a walk, then get back to my apartment around like 8, We're actually around like 7.45. And then the first thing I do is I write a Twitter thread and then I immediately write a LinkedIn post. And then I do 15 minutes of LinkedIn engagement. So that's something that really drives growth on LinkedIn is just engaging with other people's posts. Then I make breakfast. Then I sit down and uh, deal with the Amazon business, right? So if that means approving purchase orders, if that means following up with a vendor, if that means uh, reaching out to a couple of new vendors, really anything related to the wholesale business takes place after that. And then, uh, so, you know, some days that might be an hour of work, some days it might be two or three, but after that gets done, then it is more. So just any like maintenance related to the Amazon business, that's not necessarily like needle moving activity and also just general content, right? Either, uh, shooting videos, either writing more. Cause I really like to write, reading, driving range, going on walks, stuff like that, kind of just like more recuperative. But yeah. later we get into the day.
0: That's awesome. Well, Corey, I want to thank you for coming on, man. It was a really great episode. I'm sure a lot of people at home got good value from that. Uh, plug plug all your socials, wholesale challenge, all of that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And I yeah. think this podcast is going to do great. So if anybody wants to connect with me further, so I'm definitely most active on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Corey, And then if you want more like in-depth information on just the Amazon wholesale business model, Best two places for that would be my my YouTube. So I'm at Corey Gannam on YouTube. And then I have a podcast as well called the Amazon Wholesale Podcast. Check that out on any podcast platforms. And then for more in-depth training on wholesale, you can go to wholesalechallenge.com. And that's a seven-day live training on how to execute our business model.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, man. Have a good rest of your day.
1: Yeah, you too.